Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Manish Rath at Keller and Heckman, and you're listening to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath, and we're coming from uh, our offices at Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C. Uh, this is a program we do about every 30 days, and in about 30 minutes, we try and cover uh, something that's developmental to the field of occupational safety and health law, and not only developmental, but uh, some recent development in occupational safety and health law. So that's the OSHA 3030. Uh, I'm grateful to all of you who are participating, and for those of you who have signed in by web, here's the phone number to get the audio. Uh, we are joined today by my colleague, Javane Nakumaram, and I'm grateful to Javane for joining us today. Javane, welcome. Great. Thank you for having me, Manish. Javane, we have a great topic today. It centers around the general duty clause, and it arises out of a case that came out of the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, or the Review Commission. And I think it's an interesting case. Uh, what we do, by the way, as I mentioned, we uh, bring up cases or regulatory developments that have come up, and all of our prior OSHA 3030 programs, the slides and the audio are found on our website at khlaw.com uh, slash OSHA 3030. So more information about uh, maybe somewhere around the past five years worth of OSHA 3030s. Uh, in fact, I think this month would be, today is our anniversary of five years probably. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I think we started yeah. on, in an August session, maybe a September session. So this completes maybe a, a, a perfect set. And they're all uh, on the OSHA 30, uh, all the prior OSHA 3030s are at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. With that said, uh, the topics that we're going to cover centering around this new Review Commission decision deal with the General Duty Clause. So the first thing we'll discuss, I think, is a background on the General Duty Clause. Uh, then we're going to discuss uh, uh, what the overarching requirements are for any OSHA citation that they, they intend to bring, uh, the knowledge requirement. And uh, we'll get into the case itself, uh, what the Review Commission's decision looked like and why. And finally, as we always do, we'll wrap up with a uh, practical discussion of what employers should do in light of this decision. So, Javane, tell us a little something about the General Duty Clause. Let's give some, some background so that everyone is caught up to the same page. Great. Thank you, Manish. So the General Duty Clause, which is under Section 5A1 of the OSH Act, is is really cornerstone to worker safety under the OSH Act. It's a very important part of the law. That's, um, that's something that most employers are, either are aware of or they need to be aware of. It requires that each employer provide its employees with a workplace free from recognized hazards that are either causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm. So the general duty clause, it applies when there's no standard that applies to a particular hazard, and yet the employees are exposed to an alleged hazard. So the purpose of the general duty clause is to ensure that employees are protected uh, and that it addresses hazards that a standard doesn't already cover. Uh, obviously, OSHA can't possibly identify every potential hazard and every type of workplace. So this uh, this part of the OSHA Act serves to cover all types of hazardous conditions. So it's not only setting forth, as it says it does, the general duties of every employer to create a safe and healthful work environment, but it does also serve as a catch-all behind yes. all of the specific standards and their requirements. That's right. That's right. Um, and so... 
in order to uh, – well, the question is, so what does OSHA have to prove uh, in order to show that an employer violated the general duty clause? So we outline on the slide here uh, what OSHA has to demonstrate uh, for a prima facie, all the prima facie elements that have to be established in order to prove a general duty, duty clause violation. OSHA has to show all of these elements before the review commission or before a federal court in order to show that the general duty clause uh, violation took place. So first, OSHA has to demonstrate that there was a condition uh, in the workplace that presented a hazard. Uh, second, and probably uh, the most uh, controversial part, is that the hazard was recognized. I want to note that whether or not a hazard is recognized can be determined in multiple ways. So OSHA can prove that the employer had actual knowledge that the condition was a hazard to its employees. Or OSHA, more commonly, they can point to an industry standard or an industry custom or practice among experts uh, that uh, to show that, uh, that the hazard is uh, recognized in the industry. Or even OSHA can show that a hazard is recognized if a reasonable person would have recognized the hazard. So there are a lot of ways to satisfy this uh, this element. Uh, third, uh, that the hazard was ca is causing or likely to ca cause death or serious uh, physical harm, uh, and that there is a feasible method for abatement of the hazard. And then finally, that the employer knew or could have known through the exercise of reasonable diligence that the violation the violative condition existed. Um, and so Monish uh, will dive a little bit deeper into what we mean by an employer exercising reasonable diligence. Well, I think it's important to note first that when you talk about the general duty clause, there's really only four prima facie elements. All the authorities suggest that there's four prima facie elements, meaning there are four elements that OSHA has to establish. Really, that fifth one that Javane was discussing is sort of implied in all uh, OSHA citations that, that OSHA does have to prove uh, as a background element that the employer knew of the violation. Uh, most of the allegations that OSHA can bring or most of the citations that OSHA can bring are not what I'd call strict liability uh, obligations. Most of them OSHA still is burdened with showing not only those four prima facie elements but also that the employer knew of the violation. Or, or, as Javane pointed out, uh, through the reasonable exercise of uh, diligence, would have would have discovered them had they uh, exercised that reasonable diligence. So, with that said, uh, we call that second uh, quality of knowledge constructive knowledge because it's not actual knowledge. So, always uh, or almost always, when OSHA brings a citation, it has to show that the employer either knew about the violation or through the exercise of reasonable diligence or reasonably diligent efforts to discover violations, would have discovered the violation. We call that constructive knowledge. Uh, so let's talk about this case, JH Traffic Control. The case is Secretary of Labor versus JH Traffic Control Company, LLC, and it comes before the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. JA Traffic Control is a uh, road construction contractor. They don't do the construction work. They set up traffic control for road construction crews. So they're a, a subcontractor or a, uh, allied contractor, so to speak. And their process includes signboards, uh, those big electronic arrows on the back of trucks or self-standing, freestanding, as well as the barrels and flagmen that kind of traffic control for construction projects. 
uh, J.A. Tra- traffic control was uh, contracted to set up traffic control measures on a road that was undergoing road construction in Boise, Idaho. And essentially what they were doing was they, it was a, a two-lane-in-each-direction kind of road, and there was a sidewalk on the right side and a median on the left side. And J.H. Traffic Control uh, was going to protect the left lane of traffic uh, so that construction could take place. So the night before construction activity was to begin, J.H. Traffic Control drove to the traffic uh, to the construction site. They dropped the the orange and white barrels that you see uh, at construction road construction sites, and they put them on the sidewalk on the right side. And their objective was to merge both lanes, the right and left lane of traffic, onto the right lane of traffic. So they dropped the the, uh, the barrels, and uh, then two workers on foot proceeded to bring the barrels from the sidewalk to the left lane. The standard protocol, industry-wide, the testimony suggested, would have been to first of all, not place the barrels in a staging location that would have required them to cross live lanes of traffic. So uh, at the outset, the testimony suggested that the standard industry protocol would not have indicated placement or staging of the barrels on that right-hand sidewalk if their ultimate destination was in the left lane. So with that said, the other standard protocol, industry-wide protocol, was to place the barrels in a diagonal run leading from the left curb towards the center line, and that the first barrel should have been placed uh, closest to the left curb, and then diagonally the next barrel would have continued to run towards the center lane. Uh, when one of the workers was uh, repositioning a barrel, uh, to get the placement just the way he liked it, uh, motorist driving in traffic uh, and not paying attention struck both the barrel and the worker. Uh, the worker was was sent flying and was seriously injured. He was hospitalized and spent a long time in a coma, and there and sustained severe uh, head injuries as a consequence of that accident. Uh, the police came, they conducted their uh, investigation for uh, the possibility of traffic infractions and ultimately did cite the driver for uh, inattentive driving. OSHA came a couple of days later. Uh, unfortunately, as a side note, the employer did not immediately or within 24 hours uh, notify OSHA as they would have been obliged to under Section 1904 for any hospitalizations. That we've covered under other OSHA's 3030, and I think it's a really critical requirement for all of y'all to, to be mindful of whenever your employees go for uh, hospitalization for treatment. With that said, uh, the OSHA was no, found out about it in the local news and then came and conducted an investigation, including interviewing the one coworker who was actually present at the scene. So concluding that the employees were crossing live traffic, which by the way, had nothing to do with the accident. Uh, they issued a citation for that. They also issued a uh, couple of others, one for not timely self-reporting and another for uh, putting the cones in the wrong order. They should have put the, the first cone closer to the curve and continued in the flow of traffic. That later was tossed out because they just didn't have enough evidence that that was, in fact, what the workers were doing. 
So the only one that really comes up in this decision is the question of whether or not workers should have been crossing live lanes of traffic. The one worker, the co-worker, who was not hit in the accident, when he testified to the compliance safety and health officer, the OSHA investigator, inspector, he said, yeah, we placed, we staged the barrels on the sidewalk, we crossed live lanes of traffic and placed them where they belonged. And on that basis of that testimony, OSHA issued a citation. Well, there's no standard, uh, there's no OSHA standard that addresses safe practices for this kind of activity. So OSHA issued its citation under the general duty clause, which brings us around to why we're here today. Uh, as Javanet pointed out, in order to make a case under the general duty clause, OSHA had to meet its four elements. Uh, they had to establish that a condition existed, uh, that that the the hazard that they alleged was a either recognized by the employer or was a recognized hazard by the industry in question. Uh, I don't think that there's any doubt that the kinds of hazards associated with road uh, construction are ones that are, if they result in an accident, are likely to result in uh, death or serious physical harm. Uh, and so I don't think that that one is the center of any significant controversy. Uh, and then finally, that there were feasible means of abatement. And so that's what, what uh, came to OSHA to try and establish in order to make a citation stick under the general duty clause. That's right, Manish. And so in this case, uh, the administrative law judge made a final decision uh, in favor of JH traffic control, and this decision became the final order of the commission. So in this decision, the judge goes through all of the elements that OSHA needed to prove for a general duty clause violation that Manish just reviewed. So overall, the ALJ determined that OSHA demonstrated the first four, the, the first four elements of a prima facie case for a general duty clause violation. Specifically, Javanet, the, the review commission said, look, OSHA has established that a condition existed. Employees were crossing live lanes of traffic, and the, and the co-worker's testimony established that. So the, so the review commission was satisfied with that proof. That's correct. They put on testimony from experts right. that this was a recognized uh, prohibited practice in the industry, prohibited simply by, by industry practice. It was considered contraindicated by, by, uh, by the industry best practices. And I don't think there was, again, I don't think there was much debate that should an accident occur when an employee is crossing live lanes of traffic, that such an accident could lead to death or serious physical harm. Uh, and also, the ALJ agreed that there was a feasible and effective method to reduce the hazard. And so the ALJ provided some examples, such as the traffic control barrels could have been staged uh, in the closed lane rather than in the lane across the street or on the, the sidewalk or in the median uh, so an employee wouldn't have to actually cross live traffic. Also, the barrels could have been stacked on the back of a truck and set, uh, set out from a rider on the truck so the physically the employees wouldn't have to be carrying them back and forth. Yeah, let me point out on that one, when I read it, it struck me as uh, one of those instances that I sometimes see where OSHA gives all sorts of suggestions about what an employer could have done. But, again, the experts in the industry are really the ones that it's better left to. And I, I feel quite comfortable saying that a possibility exists that OSHA would cite uh, a firm such as this one if they had seen a moving vehicle where a worker was in the back of, of an open bed truck. 
uh, without uh, some other additional kinds of protections. And so I don't know if they're sincerely, if they're always sincere in their proffers of alternative feasible means of abatement. Sure. And OSHA also mentions that flaggers could have been used to stop the traffic, but these are just suggestions. There again, the flaggers exposed to whatever. (laughs) <laughs> the worker placing the barrel would have been exposed to. That's right. If an inattentive driver struck the barrel and the worker, they could have just as easily inattentively struck the flagman. So, again, I'm not sure that was sincere or thoughtful as a proffer of an alternative feasible means of abatement. Right. Uh, so, overall, the administrative law judge decided that these four elements were met by OSHA. However, significantly, when it came down to proving that the employer either knew or could have known through the exercise of reasonable diligence that the violative condition existed, uh, OSHA failed to prove this. So the um, ALJ, they actually determined that the employer did exercise reasonable diligence, uh, and and it has a discussion about what actions the employer took in order to demonstrate this reasonable diligence. So the examples provided were that the uh, the owner of JH Traffic Control personally trained employees to make sure that they understood the traffic control procedures before allowing to work without her. Uh, also, she would do random checks on her employees that were periodic, either in person or at a distance through binoculars, to make sure that things were being done correctly. Uh, she had also reported that she had never observed her employees setting up traffic barriers incorrectly. And even on that day of the accident, uh, the owner was driving to the job site at the time to check on the employees. And so, uh, and in particular for this hazard, the ALJ noted that crossing a live lane of traffic, that could have only have taken a couple of minutes. And so the owner had no way of knowing that it happened. So overall, the ALJ found that the employer exercised reasonable diligence in monitoring the job site and using proper traffic control techniques. And so the general duty clause um, uh, citation was vacated. You know, the other thing that I thought was interesting, and in in when you look at the, the evidence that was put forth in the in the case, the owner of the business also testified that she had trained this worker for two years with her to make sure that he knew how to do the job safely and could manage uh, traffic according to the company's uh, best practices before he ever let her work without, before he ever she ever let the employee work without her uh, under her direct supervision. And I think that that testimony was compelling as well. But when you add it to everything else you're saying, that she frequently would conduct these unscheduled, uh, unanticipated uh, checkups on the employees, uh, it, it painted a total picture where it looked like the employer had done what it could Mm-hmm. to try and see whether it believed there was uh, any instance of noncompliance with her rules. And historically, the testimony was she'd never found any. That's correct. I think that's pretty uh, compelling. I'll also say this. Uh, those are the elements of a good defense, whether or not you're looking at the general duty clause uh, as the basis under which the agency's issued a citation. Uh, when you look at that knowledge element, these are the kinds of uh, facts that are important to try to develop uh, in bringing a defense, whether it's under the general duty clause or under a specific citation, uh, a, a citation under a specific standard. So, so I think they did a pretty good job of marshalling all those facts and getting them into evidence. I agree. So with that said, Chavonet, what what employers should do largely mirrors what I think the evidence looked like for 
for JHL, uh, JH Traffic uh, Control Company. But I think that there's more that we would advise for employers to do in order to prepare themselves should they want to uh, or should they ever find themselves in a position where they need to raise a defense against a general duty clause citation. Many of them go specifically towards the question of uh, of the um, the essential the, the quality of whether there was actual knowledge or constructive knowledge. So. So here's some of them. I think to begin with, employers, when they set up a job site, they need to conduct a job site analysis. It doesn't have to be such a formal thing, but they do have to analyze what are the hazards at the job site. If it's the same from job site to job site, well, then very well. They, they do need to do an analysis of the type of hazards that come up with that same repeated activity. And they, they also need to stay uh, uh, current on what are the – industry-recognized hazards, there are all sorts of uh, trade journals in any industry that identify incidents that have happened recently, and there are lessons that can be learned from the incidents that get reported in these industry trade journals. Uh, in addition, as you pointed out, Javane, industries have uh, developed sometimes written standards. They've also codified them with industry groups or with uh, code-setting institutions. Uh, and then finally, I think that in addition to what the employer recognizes as the hazards or the potential hazards of their own job site and or what are industry-recognized hazards, uh, employers always have to think about the, what we call in the law the reasonable person standard or what a reasonable person would do to take precautions because that is the standard that's applied not in OSHA law necessarily but certainly in tort law. Uh, and so, so, so employers also have to always consider what uh, what are reasonable precautions or what precautions a reasonable person would take. Uh, so with that said, I think the next thing employers need to consider is uh, once they've conducted the, the hazard assessment, they need to, to train their employees, A, on what their hazards are in the job and hazard awareness, and B, uh, what are the precautions or preventative steps or the safe practices that employees are required to undertake, and that includes uh, selection, identification of the need for PPE, personal protective equipment, as well as uh, uh, the selection of the right PPE and, and making sure that employees are trained how to use them. Uh, once you've gone through that training program, I think it's really critical to test, and I've said this so many times on the OSHA 3030, uh, but I think it's really important to test employees, and the, the gold standard, I think, for testing is always demonstration tests rather than written or computer-based testing. I think computer-based testing has the advantage of automating records of what issues your employee demonstrated comprehension on, but nothing really quite establishes what the employee is capable of doing safely, like having them demonstrate and so demonstra demonstrate the task and showing how they're doing it safely. And so demonstration tests, to me, are the gold standard for testing at the end of training uh, modules, uh, if it's ever achievable, if you can ever do it. Uh, and then, as we saw with JH. Traffic control uh, monitoring, I think constant monitoring is, is elemental. Uh, what she did that was great and I think is critical is unscheduled monitoring, uh, not just programmed audits, but also just walk-through inspections, surprise walk-through inspections by supervisors or safety professionals at your organization. Finally, I think documentation is really critical. That's right. I think, um, you know, as, as was demonstrated in this case, it's important to document 
when you're going to, uh, well, after you've done an inspection, the results of, of your inspection, you know, did you find that the employees uh, violated any procedures? Uh, were there any instances of discipline? So all of this needs to be documented uh, when you are monitoring your employees' activities. Uh, and also the employer should monitor uh, you know, the history of discipline or any corrective action with employees, as well as any, um, as any uh, training programs conducted or work rules created. All of this documentation helps demonstrate uh, your efforts uh, to take reasonable diligence uh, in making sure that your employees, uh, number one, are aware of the hazards on your work site and also they know how to appropriately conduct their activities in order to uh, avoid these hazards. So the, the documentation that you create is, ju is not just a shorthand evidence of how you uh, complied with all the other elements, but, but it also forces, I think, it has the sort of salutary effect of forcing managers to be thinking about the process of training, monitoring, uh, hazard analysis, and it forces employees to reconcile themselves to the importance of the safety steps uh, and procedures at the at the workplace. So it it is also part of creating uh, the fabric of of a safety culture. Um, when employers create those documents, in addition, the, it's just easier to submit proof that all the steps that employers have been expecting to take have been taken. So that wraps it up. Uh, that's what employers should do in light of the JH uh, traffic control case. I think the really important takeaway is we are looking at a case where an employer may potentially have been uh, cited under the general duty clause under, uh, and OSHA may potentially have been able to establish all four elements of the general duty clause, but OSHA nevertheless failed because of this, what, Javanagh, you're calling the fifth element, so yeah. to speak. Uh, that's the idea of knowledge or constructive knowledge. And here, in particular, the idea of constructive knowledge, what the employer could have known had they exercised reasonable diligence. And everything you see on this last slide about what employers should do goes to the question, when we talk about training, monitoring, documentation, goes to the question of the exercise of reasonable diligence. Uh, and so that, I think that's why we've crafted this list as we have, is, is that this is the manifestation of the exercise of reasonable diligence by an employer on maybe just general, generally recognized safe practices in your industry, but ones that are, aren't specifically spelled out in a standard. So that's today's OSHA 3030. I will say one last thing. I wanted to thank all of you again for participating in the OSHA 3030 community for all of these years and for, most importantly, for forwarding on the invitation when you get it to three other people, either safety professionals or folk in your office of uh, in-house counsel, your office of general counsel in your organization, or at organizations where you have uh, colleagues elsewhere. Uh, when you forward that invitation to, uh, to three others every time you get it, that is the lifeblood of the OSHA 3030 program. We, we uh, are always grateful for those of you who through loyalty, have continued to come back to future OSHA 3030 programs, but we also need to spread the words to, to new attendees and new members of our community as well. So thank you for that as well. Uh, you can catch us on additional out updates on OSHA law developments. You can catch us on Twitter, at RathMonish. Uh, we also have two LinkedIn pages, one for Monish Rath, one for our practice group, Calvin Heckman Workplace Safety and Health uh, page on LinkedIn. 
this program, as well as uh, maybe over the past year, maybe the past 15 or uh, 20 OSHA 3030s, has been republished as a podcast, and you can subscribe so that they just get automatically downloaded onto your phone. Uh, I listen to them while driving, but you you can uh, find other opportunities to catch it and not have to be chained to your desk to catch the webinar. So the podcast serves that valuable service, and uh, and this particular uh, OSHA 3030 will be put up as a podcast probably in the next day or so. They're actually coming out more quickly these days. Uh, the next OSHA 3030 will be in about 30 days, Wednesday, September 27th at 1 p.m., always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m., uh, and you can get that information, or if, you have, if you're not getting these emails, you can register by going to khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, which is where you'll find all of the prior programs as well. So with that, I thank all of you for participating. Javane Nakumran, thank you very much for joining me again at the OSHA 3030. Thank you for having me. And uh, until next month, stay safe.